Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Wellness Inc. I'm Dr. Mike Moreno taking a deep dive into all things wellness after over 25 years of practicing medicine. I'm fascinated with anything and everything that can help you feel better, live healthier, and become the best you possible. So my guest today, Dr. Seema Yasmin, is one of those necessary people who's a great doctor and great at seeing and explaining great medicine. We all need that, right? Just as importantly, having a keen eye for answers allows her to see what does not work. She's won awards from the United States Public Health Service for leading epidemic investigations and was principal investigator for scientific studies on disease outbreaks and their long-term consequences. Boy, is this not timely. I mean, wow. Dr. Yasmin can see when disasters are coming and help us prepare to meet them. In other words, she is a legit hero, and I'm so excited to have her. Her latest effort is focused on exposing and dissecting the biggest medical myths and pseudoscience. Her new book, one of my favorite things, Viral BS, we're going to get to this, explores how misinformation can spread faster than microbes and what we can do to make up our own minds. And that's called empowerment. In a post-truth world where pandemics may be more common, we all need to keep people like Dr. Yasmin close. So. Without further ado, welcome and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Oh my goodness, that was such a generous introduction. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I, I got to be honest, when you know we we are fortunate enough to get some amazing guests that we bring on, and uh, I, I go through the rundowns and I do my research. But when I started doing my research on you, I'm like, wow, this is an impressive resume to say the least, and. I mean, we, it couldn't be more timely. And, and you know, I, I think about it because medicine is such a vast thing. I, I've been in family medicine, primary care for a long time. You, like, what, what made you go down this road of, like, epidemic investigations? I mean, it's fascinating. You know, it was frustration, actually, in, <laughs> of clinical care. So, you know how people always say, follow your heart. I would say, follow your frustrations, too. <laughs> I love you already. <laughs> I love that you said that. <laughs> it's just real, right? I mean, it's not the nicest thing to admit, but I loved being a hospital doctor in so many senses. I love patient care. I love being able to make people feel better, kind of in that short-term kind of way, in acute care especially. But then I became kind of jaded about the way that we cared for patients. And I had gone to a really elite medical school and that's not my background. And so once I was done with med school, I was desperate to go back home. And home was East London, Hackney, the place that I grew up, very real place, lots of immigrants and refugees, lots of issues around infectious disease and homelessness. And that was where I wanted to care for patients. And so I worked in my local hospital. I could literally work, walk from home to work and back again. And when that's when I became kind of jaded because I thought, we're not treating patients in a holistic way because basically I'd see the same patients 
kind of come through the emergency room or the acute care unit week after week, month after month. And I was like, hold on a second. Like this, this doesn't make sense. I drained this woman's abscess from where she was injecting drugs three weeks ago. And now she's back and she has hepatitis or she has HIV. Like, what are we doing here? And one of my mentors was an American doctor, Dr. Lynn Paxton, been at the CDC for a really long time. And she was listening to my frustrations and saying, you're actually interested in public health. And it wasn't something that I thought I was interested in because I loved patient care. And I was like, I don't know, that doesn't sound very um, hands-on. And Dr. Paxton was saying to me, you're really trying to investigate the root causes of why someone winds up your patient. You're kind of like, well, why did they get an infected abscess? Well, they injected drugs. Well, why were they injecting drugs? Or they had these things happen in their life and they're homeless. Or why are they homeless? Like, you know, really trying to understand why someone gets sick in the first place, as opposed to trying to take a a Band-Aid approach to, oh, you're sick now, let's just fix your symptoms. And so her thing was, you need to train in public health. And I was like, I don't know, like England at the time, this is 10 years ago, didn't have a great system for public health training. It was in its infancy. I didn't want to be a guinea pig. Um, and she was like, no, you need to come to the States. You need to serve in the epidemic intelligence service. They don't take on many foreigners. She was very honest with me. She said, because it's part of the US military, that I will support you and you should really try because this will be a hands-on training of not just epidemic investigations, which is what I ended up mostly doing, but also investigating why did an outbreak happen here? Why were these people affected? Why didn't it happen one county over or one state over? So again, it's looking back to those root causes of why do people get sick anyway? Why are some people more vulnerable and more susceptible to ill health than others? So I came to America 10 years ago, didn't know how long I would stay, but it was very much for that job in the epidemic intelligence service. So Anyone who's seen Contagion, which is everyone now, right? <laughs> I had the job that Kate Winslet's character plays, where you are sent out each day, each week. You don't know where you're going to get sent, what the outbreak might be. Sometimes you turn up and it's just, hey, 16 people are paralyzed, like figure it out. Sometimes it's no, there's an outbreak of whooping cough or measles or mumps or whatever it might be. How are you going to try and stop the contagion? So that was how I got into epidemics. And then there's another story of how during epidemic investigations, I was like, holy crap, we (laughs) keep focusing on the pathogens, but every time I get deployed, no matter what the outbreak, no matter what country, what state, what setting, it's never, ever just a disease that's spreading alongside the disease. There's all these rumors and myths and hoaxes and conspiracy theories, so much misinformation and disinformation about health. And in the public health world, we we were kind of like, yeah, whatever, like, you know, we'll deal with the science. And I was just looking like, yeah, this, this doesn't make sense. Our approach is not the right one. So we stole you from the UK. I think that's fair to say, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Which I'm happy about. I'll, although I will say I'm going to go on record <laughs> saying London is my favorite city in the world. Absolutely love London. It is so energetic and so incredible, but I'm happy that we were uh, fortunate enough to steal you or your colleague at the time. Um, so beautiful. Now, it, it, what you just said is just, there are so many directions we can go. I mean, there are so many layers to this. Now, I'm in primary care and, and I have that. I think scientists in general, right? We have that curious mind. Yeah. It's like something comes in the door and you immediately know, okay, this is this and this is what I need to do. But I think medicine th- for that curious mind goes 
to the direction you went, which was, well, how did this even happen in the first place? And there's so many layers to this onion that it's endless, quite honestly. And and you can look at a cultural and you can look at socioeconomic and you can look at so many things. It's it really is. It's endless. It's endless. I mean, do you get overwhelmed or did you at some no, point where you're no, like, okay. I, I don't know. Now this is making me feel really, I'm really reminiscing and romanticizing patient care in my head. Well, right this now. And that's the role of this podcast. Didn't we tell you? <laughs> I love it. Cause I'm thinking like, yes, there was definitely that curiosity that you're describing, but it's also part of caring for the person in front of you. Right? Like, right. Oh, you have an infection, like, let me roll my sleeves up. I'm going to treat your infection. Let's figure out what it is. I mean, draining abscesses <laughs> right. was something I really enjoyed because it's like a you get instant gratification. It's immediate gratification, right? You know, you, like you, know. You, you have you have a fluid buildup somewhere. Please let me tap it with, you know, with a drain. Like, it's just very satisfying. But at the same time, it's like, why did it happen? Is it going to happen to you again? Why might it happen to you again? How right. do we keep you out of the hospital? How, how do we keep you as far away from me? as possible. And so I was thinking of every encounter in a very public health way. I just didn't realize it. And I was being reprimanded by my (laughs) seniors who weren't trying to be mean, but they were kind of like, you know, figuratively giving me a tap on the shoulder or a wrap on the wrist to be like, we overheard you on the phone for too long with social services trying to get someone housing. That's not your job. And I'd be like, I get it. We have four hour cutoffs in the ED. I need to be there clocking in patients. But Mrs. Smith needs two weeks of antibiotics orally and she doesn't have a place to live. Where do you think she's going to store them? Do you think she's going to take them? I think she might become resistant. Like This is the problem. So I didn't like the way that it was like, oh, I remember one time I had a patient with TB meningitis, such a, he was such a great guy. He was very sick and he also had a mouthful of black teeth. And I was told that was not my concern. I'm like, how does that make any sense? He had infection everywhere in his mouth, but it's like this weird divide between medicine and, and everything else. Well, thank God for people like you and that curiosity, because it's true. You know, we talk about the homeless problem everywhere, you know, and I live in San Diego and it it doesn't matter what privileged city you may live in or wherever you live. It doesn't matter. It's a problem everywhere. But it's like, you know, the found it goes back to you can't just build a house for these people. You need to get down to the roots. Why are they homeless? Can we give them a skill set? Can we help them develop a skill set? Can we help them develop coping mechanisms to interact with people, to maintain a job, to hold? I mean, we could go on and on and on about this. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's talk a little bit about your book, Viral BS, which love the title, by the way. And, and all of these mi- medical myths and all of these things that people fall for. I mean, this is so relevant. It's unbelievable. But we fall or a lot of people fall for all these myths. And talk to us about the importance of, from your perspective, why is it so important that we begin to really break down the facts of these, you know, quote unquote, right. medical myths? 
Well, you know what's been happening in the last few days and weeks, right? The Surgeon General and all these other really high office officials have come forward to really call out medical misinformation and disinformation as threats to public health. And for me, it's like, it's kind of bittersweet because it's like, yes, finally, you're taking this (laughs) problem seriously. But the reason I say it's bittersweet is because there's been some of us studying this for a decade longer in some people's cases, right? We've been drumming on at people at domestic and international health agencies to say, you know, it's great we have vaccines, like what an amazing public health intervention, maybe one of the best things humans ever invented. It's not going so well with vaccines because of anti-vaccine movements and anti-science movements. And for so many years, it's been so frustrating because we just be told that's not our concern. It's not that big a problem. Just look at national vaccine coverage rates. They're high. Why are you so worried about the spread of false health information? And we've really, really ignored it. And I never thought I'd go into this area of research. It's just because I was an epidemic intelligence service officer. I moved to the US thinking I'm going to be chasing so many exotic infections, novel pathogens. And I did do a lot of that. But a lot of my work was outbreaks of whooping cough in Arizona, you know, outbreaks of measles, outbreaks of mumps, actually infections that as a young physician, I'd never seen in real life before. Well, think about like smallpox, right? Exactly. You know, it's funny. Textbook pictures. So one of my good friends I went to med school with, he's an interventional radiologist. And this is such, it's so weird that we're talking about this because he is, so his family, he was born in Pittsburgh. But he is his family is from India and he was talking about the smallpox vaccine and the mark that it leaves right on on, from the vaccination. And uh, he was out golfing. This just happened last week with some friends of his. And uh, they were like, what is that? (laughs) And he was like trying to explain to them what it was. And he's they're like, you know, they they didn't even know what it was. He goes, yeah, because it works. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, there you go. It's, and you, you know, know what I mean? Thing. We we do this in public health where when we do our job almost too well, we kind of talk ourselves out of a job. And right. it's that whole it's that whole argument of like, oh, our town doesn't need a fire department because we never have fires. And it's like you don't have fires because you have a really good fire department. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're installing the smoke alarms. They're going into schools and educating kids about not playing with matches. And I think that's what happens in public health too. But I kind of blame public health because when I was at CDC, the culture was such that a good day at CDC, and somebody in the media department told me this, a good day at CDC is one where we don't have any interaction with the media. And I get it that it can be frustrating to get freedom of information requests from reporters and you have to hand over all your emails and all that stuff. But we weren't doing a good job of explaining what we were spending people's tax dollars on. We weren't explaining how many outbreaks were happening all the time. When I tell my friends who were like teachers or worked in other industries, like how many epidemics I was investigating at a given time, they'd be like, wow, are there that many outbreaks? I'd be like, all the time. Like I was so booked and busy. I was overly busy, but we weren't doing a good job of explaining how public health works, what we were doing behind the scenes. It should have, a lot of it should have been front and center. And I think then you get a pandemic and then you're playing catch up to explain how public health works, what we do. And then we blame the public for not having a good understanding. And it's really our fault. Well, and it's transparency, right? Let's be honest. Transparency, if not at the forefront, will lead to distrust or mistrust or whatever term you want to use. But 
you know, we live in this world and it's it's not just our world, yours and mine. And, and, and you know, we can break it down into the, the specifics of what we do day to day. But don't you want just transparency in life? Mm-hmm. Do, right. Like, don't you just want I your do. friends and your family? Like, don't you want to go to a restaurant? And I don't mean to trivialize this, but don't you want to go to a restaurant and say, hey, how is the uh, swordfish? And the guy go, not that good. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right. right. Just tell me the truth. Please. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I'm not going to leave. Right. I'm not yeah. going to like go on, you know, Yelp and give you a bad review because a swordfish sucks. But be transparent. That's all we yes. ask for. And, and extend that. And we really kind of dismissed and underplayed the importance of the whole communication aspect of public health. I mean, the first freaking word in the phrase is public. <laughs> and we were kind of leaving them out of the equation. And, right. I, you know, I've seen that happen. So like communications are soft science. We deal with the hard science. It's like, you know, we we practice and we teach evidence-based medicine and we won't have it any other way, but right. we don't practice evidence-based communication. And there is an evidence base behind it, right? It's like, such a great point. Oh my God, that's beautifully said. And now when I read, because this is a research I do, I have to read the communications journals and what the social psychologists and communications experts are studying. And for decades, let me tell you, they've been studying how we communicate and documenting all the ways that it's deficient (laughs) in in changing minds, in actually explaining stuff. So there's even a term for the knowledge deficit model, which is what we use all the time, which is like, hey, I'm a scientist, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse. I need to tell you something that you don't know about going to kind of translate it to your level of understanding. Here you go. And we expect that to fit with everyone. We expect it to change their actions and behaviors and maybe even change their mind. And the communications experts are like, yeah, no, that's not how it works because we have these things called cognitive biases. And there's a whole different process that we need to engage. We just haven't been paying attention and we're paying the price now. Well, so let's let's talk a little Hollywood here because, you know, we have to do that a little bit. But when you look at like, okay, so like I know the average person like me when I watch 12 Monkeys from back in the day or even further back in the day, Andromeda Strain or Contagion, like when you watch these movies, do you think to yourself, okay, yeah, this is how it goes or this is like legit or this is like real or are you like, man, this is like misleading or this is not exact like how does it like affect your work or help or maybe even hinder your work when you watch these kind of things and the way they're portrayed it's such a mashup of accuracy some of it <laughs> is based in science they often do have medical consultants right working on set and with script writing but then there's so much of it that's Hollywood. And I actually did a video <laughs> about exactly this for Wired. You can find it on YouTube. Must have been like a year ago or so that was taking contagion kind of scene by scene to be like, yeah, you know, I used to do what Kate Winslet's character did. Here's what's legit. Here's what they are like completely like going Hollywood with. So there's definitely elements of accuracy. But what happens is the public's exposure to what we do becomes all Hollywood and very little real life, right? They need to know, they need to know us. You look at the number of like a few hundred epidemiologists and public health people have been fired or resigned since the pandemic began. There's the LA County health director. She was getting death threats 
when she right. was saying encouraging wearing masks they weren't treating these people as heroes or even just you know not even heroes like regular people who also have kids and also don't want their grandparents to die they were treating them the public was often treating these people in a very detached way as if they were just mandating things to ruin everyone's fun right um, like no one's happy about it <laughs> right. right listen i'm not I, I mean you and i grew up wearing masks i've been wearing one now 30 years you know going back to med school days right do I love it? No. Am I into the fashion behind it? And I have a cool mask? No. But it's not a responsible thing. Not even now? <laughs> no, not even now. I actually got this really silly one that actually had a picture of my face. And then when you put it on, it actually looked like my face. It's very scary oh, looking. It was so scary looking. <laughs> my girlfriend's like, uh, that's kind of freaky. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I threw it away. But you know, you know what I mean? It's like all of, I mean, so I'll say this and I'm curious to see what you say. So the mask versus non-masking. And I don't want to turn this into some political thing, but I will say in, since we've been looking at influenza and flu rates, last year was the lowest flu rate in history. <laughs> okay. Now I, wonder I, I can why. Speak, right now I wonder, was it coincidence? No, I don't think so. So for people who say, well, the masks don't work, don't work for what? Like, what is it you say they don't work for? Because if it's the transmission of disease, I'm going to argue against that because this flu season last year was the lowest recorded in history. So what, like, what do you think about? Am I, am I like, do I have a fair argument? <laughs> so what it makes me think of is again, like the, the way that we in public health and science kind of shot ourselves in the foot because mm -hmm. and the reaction to the mask recommendations last year told us so much about American society because, for example, there was Dr. Fauci and others earlier in the year, maybe in Feb, March, even April, I think, saying we're not recommending masks right. just yet, right? And then saying, okay, you know what, we've gathered enough evidence from other countries, looked at different incidence rates of COVID-19, and we are going to encourage you to wear a cloth mask. And the reaction to that was, these scientists don't know what they're talking about. Exactly. They keep changing their mind as opposed to, oh, these scientists are doing what good scientists do, which is keeping an open mind, assessing the data, evaluating the data, looking at its strengths and limitations and basing new recommendations off the latest evidence. Right. Like everything evolves. Right. Everything you don't get everything right should. the first time. You're like, oh my gosh, this is the best coffee I've ever made. Here's what I did. Okay. So now I'm never going to make this coffee any different. No, you always trying to make it better. Whatever it is, evolution is progress is what gets us where we need to be. So I, I, I mean, it would drive me, it does drive me nuts. It must really drive you nuts. But wouldn't you say that's especially the case with the scientific process where you have a question, you test it, you're willing to be proven wrong over and over, right? And right. so a good scientist will change their mind. They Correct. will say, I thought A, now things have changed, new studies have been done, now I say B. But the public, often the public reaction to that was, you don't know what you're talking about. You right. keep flip-flopping. And it's like, oh gosh, we haven't done a good job of teaching you the scientific process. And now we're just expecting you to take on these recommendations as if you know exactly how they were formed. That's so that was it. another failure. That's exactly it. It's like, you know what? If you come to somebody and say, okay, what I said last week was not entirely accurate. And here's why. Dut, 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 dut. Here's the process I went through at that exactly. time to come to this conclusion. Now, it's a week exactly. later, I'm going to change, but here's why. You, we, you can't just force feed us things. 
you know, maybe you and I get it because we're scientists. This is what we do all day, every day. We understand the, the evolution, the foundation and matriculation of science, but we have that stuff wired in our head. But the general public, most people aren't doctors. Most people aren't scientists. And you can't just switch gears one week to the next without giving foundational reasons why. And I think it's the delivery system in how we change our mind. And it's not a change. It's an evolution. I think that's important to say. But we need to tell people why. Yeah. And it's really hard to do that in the context of an emergency (laughs) when necessarily, right, there is fear, there is panic, there's so many questions. And what happens is people who are either bad actors trying to make a quick buck know exactly what to do because they exploit that uncertainty. And what they do is they tell people things with 100% conviction as if that's even a thing. They will say this mouthwash will absolutely prevent you from getting COVID or these tablets will absolutely cure you from contracting COVID. And you know what you were saying earlier when you you mentioned masks, you were very sensitive. You were like, oh, I'm not trying to get political, but I'll tell you this is completely political because (laughs) as someone who studies the spread of, and I hear you, I get it, but as someone who for years has been tracking the spread of messaging online, in person, that's anti-science, it's anti-vaccine, it's never just about the vaccine in the vial. It's never just about the small piece of cloth that constitutes a mask. It's so much deeper than that. And what we do in science is like, here's a pamphlet with 20 reasons why the vaccine is safe and why the chemicals in it have been tested, blah, blah, blah. Here's all these studies. But if you look at the messaging that's circulating, they're not just, they, I mean, there's some stuff saying vaccines are toxic or they're not safe. It's very, very um, erroneous. But there's a lot that's not about the vaccine itself. And it's saying, if you get vaccinated, you are going against the American ideals of freedom and autonomy. There's messaging saying that masks and vaccines are against the American way of life. So these are very ideological decisions. They are deeply rooted in people's culture, religion, their history, their family traditions. It's never just the liquid in the vial or the little piece of cloth. And as scientists, we like to dismiss all the other stuff instead of bringing it into the conversation. And that's the, that was the point I was just going to ask you was there are so many elements that go into a decision process that people have. Exactly. So what is like, what does the research say about, you know, why do people have these? And I'll be honest with you, straight up honest. There are people I've known for decades in my life And because this unfortunate thing that we're all experiencing in the world has never been in our lives to this extent, Mm -hmm. right? I think that's fair to say. You, why would I have had a conversation with this person about this? You know what I mean? Like it's until it presents itself. Yeah, but you may have had a conversation about something adjacent. So if we're thinking about vaccines as a thing that doesn't just protect you and your kid, but it's like a a thing that a good citizen does, right? It's a good civic duty. You're protecting others in your community too. You may not have talked about vaccines, but you may have talked about community, or you may have talked about sacrifice, or you may have talked about civic duty, those kinds of things. And I think too often, I get it, we have eight minutes for a consult sometimes in primary care. It is ridiculous. But what the, and this is what I teach, it's basically how do you shift someone's perspective it's rarely if never a one and done conversation because you're talking about family history you're talking about religion and culture and race and all of this stuff and what the research shows you know since you asked that question you ask six people who are 
have different levels of confidence in vaccines, why they might choose to not get a specific vaccine at a specific time. You might hear six really radically different reasons. And yet what we often do in medicine is give you this all the same pamphlet, give you all the same PowerPoint, give you all the same dry facts, never addressing the thing that you're actually concerned about. So right. we, you we might just give an, you might as well just give them a foreign language in some respects, yeah. really, because they're like, yeah. this doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah. it's understanding how do you communicate with someone? Well, you, there are some basic elements of that individual you need to know before you you go that direction. You know, one and, of the and, things. And let me. Yeah, I was just going to quickly put you on the spot and say, have you seen those studies that have researched how long doctors let a patient speak for before we interrupt them? Oh, yeah. It's like it's like seconds. It's like, I don't know, maybe yeah. a 60 seconds or something. Oh, no, it's closer to between 11 and 17 seconds. Oh, then we I'm doing don't a good job. Patients talk. You're doing, you I are mean, way above average. I, you know, I'm an old guy. I've been doing right it for now. a while. No, I will sit there and I walk in and what the first thing I do, and this is what I've done. And I learned this from a mentor going back many years ago, when I walk into a room now, if they're patients I've known, cause I've known them for years and years and years, that's one thing. The first thing I do is kind of just talk to them about life and their family and so on and so forth. That's what I love about family medicine. But when I'm walking into a room and it's someone that I don't know, what I try to do is when I walk in immediately try to observe something about this individual to I so that I can ask them a question about it. It may be their shoes. It may be the concert T-shirt they're wearing. It may be their watch. It may be sort whatever it may be to to come in and let, to their life. To me, it's a quite intimate job to do, and I feel fortunate to do it. Yeah. And say, hey, totally. I'm your friend. I'm I'm I, and I'm interested. And you know, and I genuinely am. I walk in, I see concert T-shirts, and I see, oh my gosh, that I've been to that concert. When I walk in, I introduce myself and I'm like, I love your shirt. And here's why I was at that concert. Da, da, da. I lay that foundation that says, I am on your side. I'm your friend. So that they have that sort of level of not dropping their guard, but feeling a little more comfortable. And then I and think it allows to, you. And you were interested. Correct. And I, I do I do get it that, you know, we we feel very crunched when it comes to time. And when we teach these classes here at Stanford and other places, people, the first thing, you know, healthcare providers will say is, but I haven't got so much time to do the kind of stuff you're saying. And then we're like, no, but the research shows actually you have a much more efficient consultation. You elicit much more of the problem list. The patient is willing to just share more and tell you more right. without you even having to keep on asking. So actually it becomes more time efficient and just right. much more productive overall. You get important critical information quickly mm -hmm. as opposed to having to tease it out and then perhaps not be accurate. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and because these, yeah, and because these are thorny issues, because these are like conversations about things like religion and about your culture and about sure. what you think about vaccines and community and all of that stuff, it can be hard to do all of that in one visit, but maybe it, you are setting up a process where that person then feels comfortable to come back to you and talk about it, as opposed to what I have in my family, which is people who are too afraid to tell their family doctor some things because they assume the doctor's going to chastise them for it. So my family's originally from India. I have lots of aunts and uncles, for example, who take Ayurvedic medicine, which is like Indian sure. traditional medicine based on herbal medicine. And I'm like, you need to tell your doctor what you're taking 
sleeping because this stuff can interact with your insulin, with your yep. metformin. And they're like, no, 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 no. They're just going to tell me I shouldn't take it, that it doesn't work. And so you end up with these relationships. And the doctor doesn't know everything about the patient because the patient's just assuming that you're you're going to tell them off. Right. So let me, let's talk a, a, a bit about this really something I wanted to get to about behavior science, right? So how can, first of all, let's define behavior science and how do we utilize it or how can it be helpful for us to, to create, you know, change and perspectives of individual? I mean, talk a little bit about that because I think it's fascinating. So this is where we really think about the true nature of medicine being multidisciplinary, that you can't just have doctors and nurses and PAs and respiratory technicians. You need people that understand human decision making, how we weigh risk versus benefit, um, people who understand social psychology and the idea that a lot of us, you know, uh, humans are weird. We are not as rational as we think we are. And often our <laughs> beliefs and our decisions are not based in fact. They're based on tribalism and what others around us believe and what's a safe thing to believe. And so I think we often, you know, like I said earlier, we try and like divorce the science from everything else as if people just live in vacuum. So we just operate in the world of just facts and not all the funky, interesting stuff that makes us human. So when I think about behavioral science, I think about bringing all of that stuff together in a much more holistic way. And I think that's much better for patient outcomes. And for, for us too, interestingly, you know, a lot of the stuff when we're teaching about like providers being better communicators, of course, so much of our reason for focusing on that is it's better for patients. Patient outcomes improve, patients feel listened to, they share more, it's safer. The research also shows that when you offer really solid, personalized communications training to providers, burnout decreases. The providers feel like, oh, I remember why I went into medicine. Like I feel connected to my patients. And maybe that's obvious. But when I first started learning that, I was like, that's amazing. I love that part of this job too. And I think it's because, you know, when you bring in that personal element, it, it doesn't feel like effort because it's yeah. almost, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's almost this sort yeah. of like almost an exhale of, yeah, you know, and, and my patients will tell you that I've known for years. It's like, they can tell, you know, when they, I walk in the room and they know when I'm struggling, right. They're like, how are you? And I'm like, right. wait a minute. You're, you're you know? human. You're not a right. robot. We're all, we're all in this world together. We're all human. Right. I, you know, I didn't land from Mars and just like come into the room. And it's like, I think that's important that, that we recognize that. And I think you made this point earlier that, um, this whole thing has really exposed a lot of just things that I, I would have never imagined happen. And, and let me ask you just, I mean, yeah. you're the perfect person. I, I, there, there's no better person, in my opinion, to ask. How do you think we've done? Well, I'm going to make this a two-part question. First of all, how do you think we did in terms of managing this urgency of this pandemic? What grade would you have given it? Where do you think we are now? And, and how does the future look for you in terms of everything? That's a big question. I get it. It's loaded. My future. I love that. I, you know, what do you think? I mean, I, I, you know, I lost two close friends to COVID-19 in March mm. and April of lot, like so early in the pandemic and then didn't even feel like I had time to grieve because it was lost after loss, right? Uh. Like I said, I have family in India. So I had an, a great aunt who died from COVID in India before the surge happened, the really bad spike happened in India. Um, so 
I mean, that's just what comes to mind immediately is like, like, that's not okay that so many people died from a disease that I think we could have been much more prepared for. And I think the pandemic did exactly what we thought it was going to do in terms of completely shining a light and holding up a mirror to how fractured our societies are and how inequally vulnerable and resilient we are. And actually, you know, my research looks at not just how some of us are much more susceptible to infection, but how many of us are much more susceptible to disinformation campaigns and to misinformation as well. I think we failed a lot of people who were already living on the margins of society. And you can just look at some really basic failures. 2009, H1N1 pandemic, we in the US did not replenish the strategic national stockpile after we depleted it of the N95 respirators over 10 years ago. This basic, The PPE, right, exactly. You you talk about politics, but this goes across administrations, right? Um, so I I think we failed people, and then we, there's been a, a repetitive, continuous, persistent, persistent failure of communication, of being transparent with the public, of offering people the information they need in the way that they need it. Too often, there's been a one size fits all public health messaging approach, which we know doesn't work. Because, like I said, you talk to six people about vaccines, they may come to it from six very different perspectives. Why are we hitting all of them with the exact same information when they clearly have different informational needs? So I think on the ground, healthcare workers, EMTs, teachers, people have done their absolute darnest best. But I think people, especially in positions of power, have really failed the public and especially failed the most vulnerable. And I think, you know, sometimes, and I wonder about this, I like, I still have faith in, I I, I, you know, for those of you who listen to my podcast, you know, I talk about my mother all the time. She passed away a year and a half ago, so uh, full life, beautiful. And thank I appreciate you saying that, but God, I learned so much stuff from her. And, oh, I and I, rem- you know, in a, as a child, I remember her always saying people are, are good. People are good. It's just oh. that sometimes they, they take a pathway that makes you think otherwise. And I think about what's going on right now in the world and what's happened. And I think about people that do stuff and you watch the news and I'm like, what on earth? And I, I'll tell you, I've never challenged that, that statement by my mother more than ever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, are they? (laughs) Because the, the behavior that's been elicited and quite honestly, and again, going back to your friends and I, I hate to hear that stuff, the loss of life. I don't, I don't care at what age it is. The loss of life is painful and, and, and it is not right. And when it's preventable, damn it, that's, that sucks. It's not right. And, and I think that we could have done a better job at this and, and, you know, the whole Monday morning quarterback, right? Well, they should have done this. You know, of course, but I think, most people had good intentions. You know, I don't think there well, was this. You know, or did they? You know, I don't I know. <laughs> Maybe no, not. Well, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. I think you're right about that. Oh, it's so easy to sit here. I mean, the pandemic isn't over. Let's be clear about that, right? But it's still easy to sit and play the Monday morning quarterback, except 
many people in science were shouting for years that a pandemic was imminent. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be. However, you look at some of the zoology and zoonotic infection journals, and there were researchers five years ago, 10 years ago, finding coronaviruses in bats that they were saying, hey, this has all the hallmarks of a virus that could switch to being able to spread to humans, perhaps pandemic potential. So there were people trying to fight for those research dollars, right? There were people saying, I don't know if we have our priorities straight. We need to think about pandemics as a national security threat. You know, now I sit on a committee at the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine that's all about looking at the spread of health misinformation and disinformation as a public health threat, because it is. But we should have been having these conversations a while ago, too, because so much of this, what's happening, the way that it is killing and affecting the most vulnerable the way it's rolled out, even vaccine access or inaccessibility in terms of how inequitable that is, it's like that some of that stuff's actually a repeat of what happened on a smaller scale with the H1N1 pandemic right. in 2009, much smaller pandemic, but so much of this was predictable and it's played out with those same historical patterns. Well, you you know, and you, you said this earlier, it's, it, you know, when you look at these movies, right. And you were saying how, yeah, there's some truth to it because there are scientists and people who are involved in creation of the movie, which pick whichever one you want, 12 monkeys, contagion, whatever. Right. Well, the, the reason why I think the, the at least some part of the evolution of these movies was because there was some scientific foundation for, Hey, this could happen. And then Hollywood gets involved yeah. and they're like, okay, let's make a movie about it. this is not like M right. night Shyamalan making some up some, you know, scary story up. You know what I mean? You're right. This stuff is rooted. Like this in is real stuff. Of reality. Right? Yeah. yeah. This is like rooted on, okay. Yeah. This is the Hollywood element, but there's some scientific basis for why yeah. this movie and, comes out. And, and again, totally. And even then the contagion of information, that's not new. And you know, In my book, Viral BS, there's a reason that I start the book with a confession. I put my hands up and I'm like, I was raised a conspiracy theorist. I believed loads of funky, absurd things because many of us were like that. Some of us continued that very deeply into adulthood. What do you think was going to happen during a pandemic? Do you think we're going to have an easy time convincing everyone? Just the other day, I had dinner with friends and new friends and friends of friends who were asking like, so is this real? And I'm like, oh, wow, we're yeah, like, like waiting people- for 2021 and I'm being after this. You know what I mean? So we, we we need to have like really honest conversations about where we are at as a society, what levels of trust and distrust we have in the scientific establishment, in, in medicine. And that's why I wrote the book, although I started writing the book many years before the pandemic. It just so happened to come out in January 2021. It, it's it's. Uh, man, I'm going to get all worked up here. <laughs> but, you know, I was out to eat the other night with some friends. We were watching a basketball game last Saturday and there was this table next to us of people. They were sufficiently far enough so that we weren't interacting yet close enough so that you could hear the conversation. And it took everything in me not to get up and just be like, what is wrong with you guys? I've been living this pandemic as a physician, you know, watching the ICU, watching our numbers, watching these in like I want to grab these people and say, come with me. I'll get the Uber for us and I'm going to take you to any of the ICUs and I'm going to show you what we're seeing. And and I'd love to just know. know. 
<laughs> you know, you know that there have been people whose dying words, who as the last oxygen and carbon dioxide was leaving their lungs, were saying to the ICU nurses, this isn't real. This isn't COVID, right? So it, it, it takes, it, I mean, it is, it, in some ways it's mind boggling. In some ways it's not because we have a lot of understanding now about psychology and social psychology. And we just haven't done a very good job at all of integrating that into medicine and, and clinical care. Uh, all right. So I want you to talk to me a little <laughs> bit about something. This stuff gets me worked up. I think I'm going to lose like three pounds from this. I, it's, you know, I love it, but I just like, oh, you know what? It's like, <laughs> I think it's, I don't know. It, it, it is frustrating. I find it fascinating. And of course, I've been on the front lines. I've seen, gosh, when I was working in Arizona, a kid died from whooping cough. This is right. about seven, eight years ago. And I'm like, that kid did not have to die it's from an infection for which we have rights. Yeah. Right. It, and what a horrible way to suffocate to death. Um, but at the same time, I get it that just communicating the scientific facts isn't sufficient to sh shift somebody's perspective often. Um, if they're coming to those beliefs about vaccines from a very ideological place. And so right. we need to be having those conversations that this is more about just than the, this, it's about more than just the liquid in the vial. It's about where you see the medical establishment. It's about what you know about the very bloody history of public health and experimentation on vulnerable people. Like we haven't done ourselves any favors in trying to build bridges and build trust over the decades and centuries. Okay, so let me ask you this question. This is like a question that's been in my mind as of recent more because of, you know, this resurgence, this unfortunate resurgence of this new variant, which we know the vaccination has a very good track record against, right? When you look at the percentages, mm -hmm. you know, I can speak locally and, and, you know, on a bigger scale that the vaccination has the people who are getting sick now in this yet another wave for the most part, not 100%, nothing's 100% in the world, for the most part are unvaccinated. So my question is, if these people, and, and I'm not speaking in derogatory sense, but if these people allegedly, when they talk about not wanting a vaccine or don't want to get a vaccine or their distrust or disbelief, whatever term you want to say, I could, you could almost argue, okay, so there is a general lack of trust for the medical system in general possibly yeah they may have other reasons yeah, right yeah. but at least like that's a like a blanket statement right but say okay so if, if they don't want a vaccine yeah there's probably other things but in general you can say okay so there's a distrust for the medical system and it may be for a number of reasons as you said but if these people were to get sick where do you think they go when they get sick well, of course, right? And, and and that's been a point of contention and frustration for lots of healthcare workers. But again, then there's still been the argument with the person who's dying about, no, you really have COVID. No, I don't have COVID. Right. But if someone is like out there that's, you know, say offered the vaccine, and I think about in India, my God, watching that was just horrific. And like I was telling you, my, yeah. my buddy Sarna, you know, he... Uh, we he and I have talked about it several times because he was like, you know, the state of, of the, you know, the, the situation in India was just horrific. Yeah. And I don't think it's gotten considerably better, I guess, maybe a little bit. But no, it has gotten better in a lot of places. I mean, Delta variant is obviously a big concern. But, you know, just to that point about like, OK, if somebody refuses a vaccine, no matter where they are in the world. Right. Right. Then they get COVID. Where are they going to wind up? You know, um, there were friends saying to me the other day that they don't work in, in healthcare. 
those people don't deserve your help. They shouldn't be allowed to rock up to the same hospitals where, you know, other people who try to take care of themselves are also winding up or they should have to pay 70 percent of their health care. You know, they shouldn't be reimbursed or something. And I'm just like, yeah, that that's really not how it works, especially like from a public health perspective. Correct. Yeah, we want everyone vaccinated, but we also want to make sure that everyone gets the best possible care. Right. Uh, and that includes a lot of counseling about the reality of the pandemic. But then. I, you know, and I was asking friends at dinner the other night too, like, oh, hey, do you have other friends who are not vaccinated? Everyone's like, no, I'm like, I have so many friends. I have um, them. I think some of them don't judgment. tell oh, me. Oh, you do? Oh, you do. <laughs> I was going to say, think... make what judgments you want about my friendship group. But no, I no, 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 no. Listen, I know them. Who, friends, don't, who won't and, get vaccinated? And yeah, and I'll tell you, uh, I think a lot of them, I, and first of all, there are some that I absolutely know do not, but then there are other uh-huh. ones who I, I assume do not because when that conversation comes up, it's quickly redirected oh, in, so they're just not being honest they don't want to huh? talk about it because they have a probably a likely pretty clear understanding of my stand stance right. on the whole thing and they're probably like uh, oh so how about uh you know the milwaukee bucks winning the championship <laughs> you know what i mean so but i know them. that's I mean, I think, 50 years yeah i know right. it was amazing game, that right i know was, so yeah. i want to i want to wrap I, I could talk to you forever but i want to wrap up i want to ask you about something tell me a little bit about the bullshit detection kit. I have to to know this. I I love your, the language, by the way, the, I love everything. Let's call it what it is, right? It's straight. Yeah, it is what it is. And I absolutely love it. The viral BS. And this one even goes even further because I, I love it. It is what it is. So What's the bullshit you know, detection I'm, kit? So I'll tell you that real quick, but before I tell you that, like the transparency thing and the just speaking in plain English is really important to me. My first book is about the origins of the HIV pandemic. And when I was writing about that, there was some really interesting history that I included in the book about times in quite recent history in the States when bad things have accidentally happened through mass vaccination campaigns, right? Mm -hmm. And so when my editor was editing the book, he's a young dad, just had some kids, and he was really worried about people not getting vaccinated, his kids getting sick. And he was like, I think we need to cut those pages out of your book because I don't want more people getting frightened that something bad could happen through vaccines. I'm like, this is exactly why we need it in the book. We need to be so transparent. Let's like wash our dirty linen in public and be like, hands up, we're in medicine, we're in public health. Most of the time we have good intentions and even then we sometimes screw up and bad things have happened through mass vaccination campaigns. Do we think HIV was seeded throughout the world through vaccines? No, we do not. But let's talk about why some people are convinced that's the case. So that's definitely my philosophy. Bless his heart, my editor was fine once I explained it. But with the BS detection kit <laughs> at the back of viral BS. Now, you know now you call it BS. <laughs> it's the bullshit. I know. I'm why, go, am I I like, think, why am I cleaning it yeah, up? Yeah, yeah exactly. You just said, it say it how it is. Go ahead. I'm going to let I'm you say it one more time. I'm always scared I'll say bullshit when I'm like live on CNN or something. But the bullshit detection kit All right. was inspired by the late, great Carl Sagan, who had a baloney detection kit. 
So mine is the revamped modern day version of that because the rest of the book goes through a bunch of these myths and things that I get asked about all the time. Should you eat your placenta? Do vaccines cause autism? Can you cure autism? Did the US government purposefully infect people with syphilis and gonorrhea? Like it goes, some of these are true, some of them are not. You have to read the book to find out which is which. But the whole point of the bullshit detection kit is <laughs> when you are confronted with something new, I want you to have some tools to be able to figure out for yourself, is this legit or is it not? What are some questions I can ask myself just off the bat to figure out if I'm going to keep going down this rabbit hole or if this is just absolute bonk? So that was the point of the bullshit detection kit. Well, I, I absolutely love it. It was kind of, it's kind of funny because I, <laughs> I just finished a book that'll be out at the end of the year. And, you know, oh, congrats. I, 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 thank you so much. And the, uh, the concept of the book is really more of the good, less of the bad, not to get off track, but really it's like, mm-hmm. you can't just say, okay, you need to start running 10 miles a day. You need to become completely plant-based. You need to give up everything that you like and only do others. Like that's not going to work. So my concept of the book, and, and it's clearly outlined throughout the book is more of the good, less of the bad, right? Wherever you are, let's try to mm-hmm. make you head the right direction. But my right. publishing company, God bless them. I love them. I've worked for them for 11 years now. When it can't, you know, I think they sort of just thought, all right, let's let him think we're going to call the book that, but there's no way in hell we're going to, that's going to sell, but you know, cause they know, you know, they know they love the concept and they're like, you know what, Mike, we love it. Your concepts are true and true and, and in there. And that's the, but we can't really call the book that. And I was so bummed. I was like, yeah, what do I know? I'm not a publishing company. Right. So I don't know, but to your point, right. Just put it out there. And that's what we have yeah. to do. And, and I, yeah, I absolutely, so we, uh, let's finish this off with, first of all, thank you. Um, thank I, you. I, Thanks for having me. Just so pleasant to speak with you, but how are, do you think we're going to be okay in this whole thing? And I, and I think people listening right now are, are really going to just kind of tune out everything else. Hearing from one of the best and biggest experts in the world, quite honestly, in speaking with you from, from just a human level and a science level and a common sense level space, I think you're about as qualified as anybody could ever ask to hear this. Are we going to be okay? There's an incredible activist called Mariama Kaba, and she talks about hope as a discipline, almost like a muscle that you exercise. And in the midst of so much grief and despair and uncertainty over the last almost two years, I've really been leaning into hope as a thing that I practice, having faith and having a faith background and having faith in the good in people, like your mom said to you. Yeah. So to answer your question, I would say, you know what? We're not okay. We have not been okay. The people who were most vulnerable in our society were the ones that got most screwed over. And that is definitely not okay. I mean, one in six kids in America right now isn't sure where their next meal is coming from. Nothing about that is all right. Like we, sh- we shouldn't be sleeping well at night just based off that alone. But I do have faith that we can make things better. It's going to take a really concerted effort to bring together different factions of society it's going to take a lot of apologizing in my opinion and it's going to take a lot of being super upfront and transparent about all that went wrong and all that was done poorly and what might be done in the future to fix that that's what i think about 
I uh, I think that is the perfect place to end with that element of maintaining hope and faith. And I think you said it, we're going to have to untangle some of the webs we've weaved and say, yeah. all right, we got to, we're going to have to step up and own some of the things we did. But yeah. again, to that point, I, I think we all need to have that hope and faith in doing that. So yeah. And lean into what your mom said to you about yeah. recognizing and seeing the good in ourselves too, and each other. That's going to yeah. be so pivotal. We keep, just keep trying. So where do we find you? How do people find you? How, I mean, and, and thank you so much again. I mean, just brilliant stuff and just, oh, thank uh, you. you're, you're so, so generous. So thank much you. fun, but where can we find you? <laughs> you can check out my books on my website, which is seemayasmin.com. And I'm on Twitter at Dr. Yasmin and Instagram at Dr. Seema Yasmin. Well, thank you. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart. Um, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Weekly RX. So a lot of great stuff today. Really, you know, we finished it with with some, you know, inspirational and, and, and good thoughts. But I, I think a few things really struck out in my head. The first thing was that so much of the opinion and so many things that people believe, it's not just based on that one particular thing. It's based upon so many things foundationally in people, socioeconomic, culture. So many beliefs make people think and have the opinions that they do. And I think we need to be sensitive to that. I think secondly, education. Education is so key. And, and trying to seek out education from reputable places and, and doing our best to, to be educated on, on the topics that that we're interested in, whatever that may be, before we formulate opinions. And lastly, and quite honestly, most importantly, we have to maintain a sense of hope and faith because not just with this, but with everything in life, it's hope and faith that gets us through. Well, that's it for today. Don't forget to subscribe for free, download and listen to Wellness Inc. with me, Dr. Mike Moreno on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow me on social at The 17 Day Diet and also at Stage 29 Podcasts. Thanks so much for being here. We'll talk to you soon. This has been a Stage 29 Podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan DeMatty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horinage, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. The Wellness Inc. with Dr. Mike Moreno podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service.
The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional. Thank you.